So our text this morning is from First Chronicles. And if I were a betting woman, and for the record I am not because gambling is prohibited by the social principles of the United Methodist Church, but if I was a betting woman, I would bet that no one sat down in their pew this morning and looked at the bulletin, saw the scripture, and went, yes, First Chronicles, my favorite book of the Bible. I can't get enough First Chronicles. And the reason I say that is because I think most of us find First Chronicles a rather difficult book to read. It's sort of a crawl through First Chronicles because most of the book is made up of lists, long lists, uh, genealogies, lists of leaders, military lists of various kinds, and lists relating to the construction of the temple. But if you read carefully through all those lists, you will find a thread of thought that weaves its way through First Chronicles, and that is that King David was a really great guy. In First Chronicles, David is portrayed very positively, culminating in this little snippet that Matt just read for us. David lived a long life, marked with wealth and honor, then he died, and his son Solomon succeeded him. Well, that's interesting. That's a little factoid. Why are we talking about it this morning? Well, this is where being a student of the Bible pays off. Because if you're a student of the Bible, then you know that in the preceding books of 1 and 2 Samuel, David is portrayed quite differently. In 1 and 2 Samuel, the writer goes to great lengths to show that David was a sinner. David is portrayed very negatively in 1 and 2 Samuel. He's shown to be a flawed man, a man who failed, a man with feet of clay. It's 1 and 2 Samuel that tells the story about how David had a man named Uriah killed off so that he could get with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. It's a pretty horrible story. So you've got all this negative stuff about David in First and Second Samuel, and then you skip a few books, and you get to First Chronicles, and it's like a whole new world. There he's lifted up very positively, and all those lists you see are meant to shore up this uh, opinion that David is a really great king. The genealogies and the lists of leaders are to show that David was a really important person. And the military lists are to show that he was a great military leader, and the lists related to the construction of the temple are meant to show that he was a great spiritual leader. And then it's all wrapped up with this statement. He lived a long life, marked by wealth and honor. He dies, and his son Solomon succeeds him. So friends, what gives Why do we have these contrasting portrayals of David laid out in the Old Testament for us, one so negative and then the first chronicle so positive? Any guesses? Well, I think the reason they're both in there is because we need the perspective. First and second Samuel remind us that David was a real person. He was a human being with feet of clay. He was a sinner. And he committed some very serious offenses during his lifetime. But then 1 Chronicles reminds us that David is more than his mistakes. 
that despite his sins and failures and shortcomings, God doesn't label David a failure. God doesn't define David's life, his core identity, based upon the things that he has done wrong. God doesn't label David like that. And friends, God doesn't label us like that either. Back when I was in seminary, I was in a class once where the professor asked all of us to get out a sheet of paper and answer a question. Who are you? He said. Write it out. So I think most of us, me included, started writing things like my name and address and phone number. And he stopped and he said, I can tell that a lot of you don't understand my question. He said, I'm asking, who are you theologically? Who are you theologically? Answer that question. So we all scratched our heads for a few moments and wrote something down. And then the professor asked us to turn to our neighbor and share what was on our paper. So I was sitting next to a woman from another denomination, and she showed me her paper first. And she had written down, who am I? And her answer was, I am a sinner. That was her answer. Who am I? I am a sinner. And then I showed her my paper. And I had written down, who am I? And I had answered, I am a child of God. I am a child of God. And she looked at me and she said, you're a Methodist, aren't you? (laughs) And I said, yes. And she said, well, that's just like a Methodist. (laughs) You Methodists never talk about sin. You don't take sin seriously. And I said, well, I can't speak for all Methodists. But I take sin very seriously. I know that I'm a sinner. It's just that as a Christian, I believe that sin is not what defines me. I believe that by grace, it's my relationship with God that defines who I am, that that's how grace works. And friends, I believed that back then, and I still believe it now, that it is by the operation of grace that we are not linked forever to our sins and mistakes and failures, that we're not bound to our sin, that we are more than our mistakes. And thanks be to God that when we do something wrong, we are not forever slapped with a label. Can you imagine if it really worked like that? It would be like having one of these backpacks on your back. And every single time you do something wrong, a rock goes in there for you to carry around forever. And also, all the rocks are there for everybody else to see. That would be quite a burden, don't you think? If it worked that way and God labeled us forever based upon our sins and mistakes and failures, if we were stuck with that, well, that would mean then that if I told a lie, God would forever label me a liar. And if I was unkind to a friend... God would forever label me a mean person or a disloyal friend. And if I failed at something, well, then that would mean that God would forever label me a failure or a loser. Thanks be to God, it does not work that way, friends. Because if it did, I don't know how we could even live. I don't know how we would get up in the morning and hold our head up and live. 
God does not label us like that. But unfortunately, many of us just go ahead and slap the label on ourselves. And the results are terrible. Years and years ago, I was in a Bible study with a woman who told the group that when she was in college, she had been caught cheating on a class project. And this was quite serious because her university took cheating very seriously. Um, It was no joke. Um, So she went through some sort of administrative process, and the result coming out the other end was that she was suspended from school for two semesters. And she had to immediately pack up and go home, and this was in the middle of a semester. So you can imagine that this was a very public punishment. It was publicly humiliating to her. She was very ashamed. Everybody in her life knew what she had done, her friends, her family, her classmates. Well, she said that the day she was packing up to move out of the dorm, she heard some girls who lived on her hall talking about her. One of them said, what happened? Why is she moving out? And the other one said, well, haven't you heard? She's a cheater. And this woman said those words, she's a cheater, just rang in her head. And after that, she could not get rid of them no matter what she did. It was as if those words then dropped to her heart and made a home there. It was like the words, I am a cheater, were tattooed on her forehead. She spent years in pain over this, feeling so ashamed, convinced that God and everyone else saw her as a cheater. She said that she had a fear that people in her life, if they knew about that incident, would think that she was a cheater too. Now, when I was in that Bible study with that woman, I would guess she was in her early to mid-30s. This incident had happened more than 10 years before, and yet the wound was just as fresh as if this had just happened to her. She felt her core identity was tied to the fact that she had cheated on a class project in college and the emotional torture that she was going through was heartbreaking to witness. Friends, thanks be to God, it does not work that way. And we know this, that we are more than our mistakes in the sight of God, that we are not tethered forever to our sin because of the witness of Holy Scripture. Examples like First Chronicles relating to David, but we also find evidence of this in the New Testament, of course. I mean, if we were tethered forever to the bad things that we had done, to our shortcomings, our flaws, our sin, well, then that would mean that the Apostle Peter would be forever labeled a coward because he abandoned Jesus on the night he was arrested. And it would mean that the Apostle Paul would be forever labeled a bully and a persecutor Because prior to his conversion on the road to Damascus, Paul persecuted Christians. And yet, don't we know, friends, that God 
did not label those men that way. God doesn't label us that way either. We are more than our mistakes. God sees us with eyes of love and grace. And our primary identity is grounded in the fact that we are all beloved children of God. And that is so important for all of us adults to know and grasp onto. But I tell you what, the fact that school starts for so many of our kids tomorrow got me to thinking about their feelings and how important it is that our children and youth know this too. Start of a new school year is exciting, right? It's a really exciting thing. There are great things ahead. And at the same time, the start of a new school year can be so daunting too. As I'm making my way through these listening sessions that I'm engaged in right now, in the life of the church, I'm talking to a lot of parents. And I've heard from a lot of you who are parents that kids in our community are under a, a tremendous amount of pressure. Do you know that? And the pressure starts early, like kindergarten. They are under tremendous pressure to perform, to excel academically, athletically, socially, artistically, that for some kids it feels as if the bar has been set at perfection. And Lord knows none of us can meet that kind of bar with respect to performance. And given this pressure that our children are living with, the last thing they need is to believe that if they make a mistake, if they mess something up, if they fail, they are forever labeled and defined by that. But our culture is a labeling culture. I know you know that too. Our culture works so hard to label people based upon performance, and it's cruel to our children and our youth. A kid gets in trouble a few times at school, and before you know it, the talk has started. And that child or that youth is labeled a bad kid. A bad kid. Or a child struggles academically. Their best work is a B or a C. That's their best work. But before you know it, they are labeled a poor student. Or a child or youth struggles to fit in. They struggle to make friends. They don't seem to be able to find their place. And before you know it, the culture labels them a misfit or worse. And you know the thing that breaks my heart about this, even more than the pain that is caused in the moment that those labels are applied, is that so many times those labels become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Do you know what I mean by that? Friends, as the Christian community, as the body of Christ, it is our privilege and it is our responsibility to speak back to the culture, to speak back into the space, and to assure our beloved children and youth that they are more than their mistakes, that they don't have to tote around everything they've ever done wrong or every failure in a backpack 
that they are beloved children of God. That that's how God sees them and that's how we see them and that's who they are. And if you have a child or a youth going back to school tomorrow, I pray that you will take a moment, linger just an extra moment with that hug and remind them who they are and whose they are. That they are so much more than their mistakes. That they have eternal worth and value as a beloved child of God. Send them out the door like that, will you? And you know, the beginning of school got me to thinking about teachers in my life that have made a a big difference. I would bet that you have some teachers that made a big difference in your life, too. I'll admit to you that um, I have a tender spot for teachers because I I have had some amazing teachers that have really touched my heart and illuminated my mind, but moreover, I have a family full of teachers. My mother was a teacher, and my sister-in-law is a teacher, and my brother is a teacher. He's a professor. So I have great appreciation for what teachers do and great empathy for them because they do such important work, and it can be so hard. Well, when I was in law school, I had a constitutional law professor who said something to me that I have never forgotten that I want to share with you. But to set this up, you have to understand something about my law school career, which took place about a million years ago. But back then, uh, at least when I was going through, uh, you only received one grade for a class, and that was your final exam. So you did all this work, all semester, hours and hours and hours of hard work. And there were no quizzes or projects or other tests. What you made on the final was what you got in the class. So you can imagine the pressure that students felt when it came to the final exam. Well, I remember sitting with my class waiting to take this constitutional law final, and we all knew it was going to be very hard. It was a four-hour essay exam. So we were all sitting there, feeling the pressure, sweating bullets. Uh, I remember everybody had their big stack of blue books and like eight big pens. I don't know if we thought one might run out or something. It just made us feel more secure to have this pile of pens there. So everyone's sitting with their blue book pile and their pile of pens waiting to take this four-hour test. When the professor said to us, hold on a minute. Everybody put down your pen and take a breath. So we all did. And then he said, I want all of you to look at me. All of you to look at me. He said, never forget, you are not what you make on this test. This is an important exam. But you will do a lot of things in your life that are much more important than taking this test. Get some perspective. Never get your performance confused with who you are as a person. And I've never forgotten that. Perspective is very important, friends. I think that is why we have First and Second Samuel laid out so close to First Chronicles. So that we can see that although all of us make mistakes, we all sin, we all fail, 
we all have our shortcomings if those things do not ultimately define us. But that by God's grace, we are emancipated from those burdens and set free to truly live. That you and I are not the sum of everything bad we've ever done. No label was slapped on us by God. But instead, we are beloved children of God with eternal worth and value. And if this morning you are holding a burden, if this morning in your heart you know that you have slapped a label on yourself, I pray you will let it go. Because you don't have to carry around a backpack full of rocks for the rest of your life. That's not God's will for you. And if you have a young person in your life that's about to start school, will you just take that extra moment to wrap your arms around them and assure them that they are more than their mistakes too?